Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Today we will bridge the gap from chapter 13 to chapter 14. And we will begin in verse 49, where we left off last week, chapter 13, verse 49. And we'll read through chapter 14, verse 7. So if you would follow along in your copy of God's Word, this is the Word of God, Acts 13, 49. And the Word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, verse one, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed both of Jews and of Greeks. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders be performed by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews while others with the apostles, and when they attempted, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to treat them abusively and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's bow and ask God's blessing on our time together in his word. Great triune God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, we come asking your blessing on us now. Bless your word to the good of your people. Help us by your spirit to be good hearers. Help us to hear, some to hear to the end that we will be sanctified by your truth, conformed to the image of our Savior. For others, we pray that you would help them to hear unto conviction and to salvation. Grant repentant faith for those who are calling on you, for those who you are calling to yourself. Lord, bless us this hour, bless this preacher and the preaching. Bless the hearer and the hearing. Bring about your will through your word and your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we left off with verse 49. The word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And that's a good statement to end on, isn't it? What a wonderful thing to hear. It's an encouraging statement. And it tells us of the success of the gospel that the gospel preaching had been successful. But even though there was gospel success, there was still gospel opposition. When we think that the gospel encounters either success or opposition, we err. 
In this world, the gospel will always be met with opposition. And at times, we may think that seems hopeless. But we must remember also in this world, the gospel will always accomplish the will and purpose of God. There will be gospel success. The final verses in chapter 13 remind us of this truth, gospel success and gospel opposition in the same passage. I'd like to point out that when this preacher reads the text for the coming Lord's day and finds something like this, prominent women instigated persecution against gospel preachers, it doesn't exactly spark joyful exuberance. Today's political and social climate makes matters of gender a volatile topic. So, as an expository preacher, I can't skip it. Let's just jump right in and jump in there first. I would like to begin with the words of John Eady and what he says about women and Christianity when he comments on this passage. John Eady says, quote, women are rarely ranged against the gospel. In its introduction, high honor had been conferred upon them. Blessed art thou among women was Gabriel's salutation to the mother maid. She has done what she could was the Lord's eulogy on another Mary. And to a third Mary, as she stood by his tomb and did not recognize her risen friend in the dim light of morning, he says simply, Mary. And the familiar tone at once excited the joyous response, Rabboni. Women were last at the cross and they were first at the tomb. Women supporting Jesus Christ is not an isolated incident and it's not isolated to these examples that Edie gives us. There is great testimony of the valuing of women in the kingdom as well as the service of many women to our Savior. Edie continues with these words about Acts 13. These devout women, heathen women, won over to Judaism, formed an exception and wrought with the female art against the preachers. I pray that Christians will stay clear of the world's attempt to understand and to answer gender equity. I pray that we can look to Christ in whom as far as equality there is neither male nor female. In terms of fulfillment in life and marriage, he created them male and female. And then we can embrace the beauty of men and women, both created in the image of God and complementing one another as image bearers. These devout women of, of prominence in this text were joined either with or without persuasion by leading men of the city, men of the first place. The prominence 
and leading positions of these instigators may be an insight to their motivation, why they stood against these gospel preachers. The success of the gospel was throughout the whole region. And we will see in the coming verses that great numbers were being saved. And it's likely that this was a threat to their places of prominency and primacy. This persecution instigated against Paul and Barnabas was no light inconvenience. Many of us speak of persecution as though we know something of it and most of us do not. This was no light inconvenience. They were driven out of the region. We're not told of the details, but whatever the occasion, they remember that the preachers did not retool their message. We must keep in mind that they followed the instruction of our Lord. The Lord had given this instruction when he sent out the 70 back in Luke 9. Jesus said, as for those of you, as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And that's what we see here in verse 51. They shook the dust from their feet in protest or in statement against those who have rejected Christ. This speaks of the attitude of these preachers. As a matter of fact, this would be the practice for them for the rest of their ministry. First preach to the Jews, then preach to the Gentiles. Then when the intolerance had them run out of town, don't look back. Keep going to the next place where you will preach the same message, the same Jesus, the same Christ. So as they left this city being driven out of town, being driven out of the region, they shook the dust from their feet and they went to Iconium. Verse 52, after it tells us that the, the preachers shook the dust of their feet and went to Iconium, we get a glance back at Pisidian Antioch. We dare not forget that as Paul and Barnabas had come there and preached, now there are new Christians and we may wonder how the persecution of the preachers affected them. We read, they were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What a testimony. What a, what a statement of God's care for his own people. These Christians were not Paul and Barnabas's children. They were children of God. And as God's children, God did not leave them abandoned. They were filled with joy. As impossible as that may sound, as beyond reason as that may seem, it is possible in Christ. It is reasonable for a Christian, for Christians, to be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit even during times of persecution. You might even make the case for especially during times of persecution. 
Chapter 14 opens with the same pattern, entering the synagogue. We are not given here the details of the sermon or not even a summary of the sermon. No details of the message that was preached. But we can know something of it. We can be sure that the message did not change. They didn't get to a new place and have a new thing to say. We know that the message did not change and we can recognize that even the results are the same. In verse one, a large number of people believe. And in verse two, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the people against them. So we can be sure that this was the same message preached, the same as before. And I would just to get you thinking in this direction, because I know what's coming later in the passage, later in the message, this is the same message that Paul and Barnabas had preached before. And this is the same message that was preached by the other apostles. This is the same gospel. Let's take note of verse one. This may come as a surprise to some of us. Verse one, we find this phrase. They spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed. The King James says, they so spake. And this is not talking about the message. It's talking about the method. It's not talking about the content. It's talking about the conveyance. They spoke in such a way. They spoke so. From the beginning of my ministry, there have been those who would argue for a divergence from the old ways of the church. This old thing about we come together and we hear preaching. They say, can't we can't we change the method and keep the message? That's the idea. Change the method without compromising the message. Can't we do that? Well, in short, the answer is no. The method always will adjust or tweak the message. God has given us a message and God has left the method Does God just leave it for us to figure out? I'm going to give you the gospel and you figure out what you should do with it. No, we have God's gospel message and we have God's method. It is the preaching of the cross that is the power of God unto salvation. I tire of hearing Christians speak about the latest so-called Christian movie. I tire of hearing Christians speak about the Christian TV show. The latest Christian TV show. If you don't know about it, don't go look it up. You don't need to. But the creators of the latest quote unquote Christian TV show says 
this will really showcase the authentic Jesus. This will really showcase the authentic Jesus. What we have written in his word and the preaching of his word is not good enough. We need a television series that will authenticate, that will show the authentic Jesus. And Christians fund these futile efforts. How can you call them futile efforts, preacher? Because God has nowhere promised that he would bless that sort of thing. And he has promised that he would bless the preaching of his word. These Christian funded futile efforts, these Ten Commandment breaking ventures have all but abandoned the means that God has given for the advancement of the kingdom. The word of God read and preached in the church. Until I come, give your attention to the public reading, to exhortation and teaching. That is to the preaching of the word. Here's a little checkup. For those who are perishing in sin, the preaching of the cross of Christ is foolishness. And for those who are being saved by it, the preaching of the cross is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This verse, verse one, indicates that there was attention given not only to the facts of the message, but also to the method, to the way in which the message was delivered. I struggled with whether to give you this illustration because it's one of the Todd Gill silly illustrations, but I think it will make a point. When I was a young person, we in our youth group in our church had joked that the words to amazing grace could be sung to any tune. And our favorite example was the tune, the theme to Gilligan's Island. We won't do it now. <laughs> Try it on the way home. Does the method change the message. And in my illustration, what does the tune, the theme to Gilligan's Island, do for the words to amazing grace? They minimize the words. They bring the wrong method. When the wrong method is applied, the words are lost. The meaning of the words, words like "twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Changing the method changes the method. It's worth mentioning that today there seems to be an allergy in the church to singing 
a precious hymn to the tune that the church has used for centuries. There's an effort to modernize or in some way update the music of the church. I'm not opposed to new music. But when we change the method, we change the message. This is a shame and a loss to the church. Perhaps I reveal my true heart on the state of church music today. So let's get back to the text. Verse one says the preachers spoke in such a way that the people believe the facts of the gospel are absolutely necessary. A preacher who does not know the facts of the gospel is not fit to preach. But the manner in which they are spoken must also be considered. Some preachers seem to think that it is their job to be rude. Dispense with the rude preacher. Away with the uncaring pastor who doesn't prepare to give an excellent apologetic account of the gospel. Preachers, to the best of our ability, we are to preach. Know the facts, but also know the souls for which we fight. Know that the tools that we use are words, persuasion, appealing to the affections through the intellect. A preacher of the gospel must study to show himself approved. A workman that does not need to be ashamed. A workman in the message as well as in the craft or the method. They spoke in such a way that a large number of people believe. May God bless his preachers today to speak in such a way. As I mentioned, probably because a large number believed, the unbelieving Jews took issue and set out to stop the preaching of the apostles. Verse 2 tells us that they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the apostles. This certainly doesn't mean that when they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles that they stirred up every single Gentile. In these verses, this one and the verses that follow, we'll see groups referred to Gentiles, Jews, and apostles. As the apostles spent ample time preaching and defending the gospel, verse 3 tells us that they spoke boldly. And there's no question that they spoke boldly. But the question is, do we have a good understanding about what this means? To speak boldly. Melanchthon Jacobus suggests that this could be stated that they spoke with freedom of speech. It, it may not indicate that they spoke loudly or that they spoke forcefully. Surely they would do that if the situation is called for. But it didn't have to be boldly or loudly. They spoke with freedom of speech. And we need the gospel to be preached with freedom of speech. Christians have said to me in my ministry, 
How? How can I tell my Muslim coworker that they're lost in sin? How can I tell my Buddhist friend that they will go to hell? I've heard people who proclaim to be Christians say, I will not. I will not say that Jesus is the only way. We must learn a lesson from these apostles. They spoke boldly. They were not threatened with social isolation or embarrassment. Their threats were real. There were plans to stone them. They were not plans that were brought to completion yet, but they were going to be brought to completion. But the apostles spoke with boldness. We who live in a nation that proudly proclaims freedom of speech. We Christians should know what it is to speak of Jesus as though there would be no repercussions. Certainly, no one's trying to stone us here in Waco, Texas. So why do we let social discomfort or a little isolation deter us from speaking the truth about Jesus? Verse three says they spoke with boldness and with reliance upon the Lord. This wasn't the Paul and Barnabas show. They didn't come in and say, we're going to do this the way we want to do this. They were continually relying on the Lord as they ministered in Iconium. Look at verse three. Therefore, they spent a long time there boldly speaking with reliance on the Lord. Watch who was testifying. Just a question. Who was testifying? Who does this who refer to? They spoke boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace. Granting that signs and wonders be performed by his hand. The Lord testified to the veracity of the message preached. He verified that it was his word of his grace. And the Lord did this by granting signs and wonders be performed by their hands. Miracles. Paul and Barnabas didn't decide to do miracles in this city. Let's do that this time. That'll be a good idea. They didn't make a decision to bring out their tricks. That's not how this worked. Let me, let me remind you that Paul, in this passage of scripture and in the coming verses, we'll see, Paul is the miracle worker. God is doing these miracles by the hand of Paul. But Paul told Timothy that he had left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Had to leave a sick 
brother behind. If Paul could heal on command, then he would have healed Trophimus and said, get back into work. Paul was unable, apparently, to heal Trophimus. So he had to leave him. You'll find that at the end of 2 Timothy. Also remember what Paul told Timothy about his stomach ailments. Remember what he didn't tell Timothy? I now pronounce you healed. Drink a little wine, not only water. Be bold. He didn't heal Timothy. What my, my point here is that Paul and other miracle workers in the New Testament did not work miracles by their own will and their own command. Miracles such as healing were not tricks that they could pull out. This was not a power bestowed on the apostles to be used at their discretion. Miracles were, well, let's just use the word of the text. Miracles were granted by the Lord as testimony to the word of his grace. Miracles were granted by the Lord as testimony to the word of his grace. They were for affirmation and for verification of the word being preached. When we see miracles in this way, miracles of scripture in this way, then it makes sense that God no longer uses these, this type of signs and wonders because we have the full canon of scripture. And now the Bible is our test of what is true and what we must believe. There God was granting that miracles were the testimony to the word of his grace. Even with miracles being performed in this place, the city was still divided. And this speaks to the blindness of sin. Even when there are miracles that can only be explained by the hand of God, men will deny the truth and hold to their stubborn unbelief. The people of the city were divided and we're told that some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. And if you're keeping count, there's only one apostle there, Paul. But it says some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. This is in general broad statements, Jews and apostles and it is not an indicator that Barnabas was an apostle. And some have explained this, and perhaps I should just leave it at this. Some have explained this by suggesting that the apostles is just a title for the group of missionaries. But as I alluded to before, I would like for us to consider that this is more meaningful. The Jews indicates those who were rejecting Christ and those who sided with the apostles, it indicates that they believed the gospel. They sided not only with the apostle Paul and Barnabas and those who were with them, but when they sided with the gospel in a very real way, 
They sided with all the other apostles as well. The gospel of Peter and James and John and Andrew was in complete harmony with Paul's gospel. So some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. All the apostles. Why do I bring this up? Because I want us to consider it, it's important for us to remember our place in Christian history. It's important for us to remember that our own confession of faith connects us to Christian history. When we side with, to use the terms of our text, when we side with our confession, we are aligning ourselves with Reformed Baptists throughout history, all the way back to Peter, James, John, and the Apostle Paul. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the Apostles. Verses five and six tell us of a plot against these gospel preachers. And they received the information with wisdom and they acted to avoid the danger. I've heard some young men say their goal is to, to go abroad and to be killed for the sake of Christ. What a terrible goal. What a horrible goal. Yes, he did say that. That's a horrible goal. To say, I want to go forth and proclaim the gospel of Christ, come what may. That's different to go and say, I want to die. Wait a minute. You don't know. You have no wisdom to determine when you should die. And when we hear that these apostles heard of this plot and they avoided it, we should follow their pattern. They hear the plot. They left the city. Verse 7 tells us that they went to a region called Lyconia. The cities there were Lystra and Derby. And we end in verse 7 with this statement. They continued to preach the gospel. They continued to preach the gospel. They were not put off by those who rejected the gospel. They were not deterred by the threats against them. They didn't look back. They press on and they continue to preach the gospel. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. We pray, God, that we, your people, would be sanctified by your truth. God, forgive us where we have been the ones who have been resistant, who have spoken against the message or the methods that you have given us. Help us, Lord, that we might do your work in your way. God, we pray for the preaching of Jesus Christ we pray that you would raise up preachers. That you would raise up preachers with tenacity, with backbone, with strength. 
that you would raise up preachers with great minds. Minds to understand the deep things of scripture and minds to communicate those truths to your people. God, we pray that you give your church a conviction that the gospel continue to be preached. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.